Welcome, friends, to another episode of Chris in the Classroom. I'm Chris. This is my classroom. Friends, joining me in the classroom today, we have a very, very special guest. He is blowing up the internet. He is blowing up social media. His videos have been shared hundreds of millions of times all around the world. In fact, I've even seen some of his videos translated into a number of different languages, anywhere from, from Japanese to Chinese to Spanish to... Uh, tons of different languages. Friends, my very special guest in the classroom today is Brooks Gibbs. Today what we're going to talk about is a question that I get a lot, and I'm sure you you get a lot as you're out there speaking as well, uh, and, and it's a question that centers around bystanders. Uh, whether they're good, whether they're bad, uh, schools that always say, well, we tell our kids to be upstanding bystanders. And, and it's just a, it's an issue that, at least for me and, and some other folks that I talk to, it comes up a lot as far as, well, why don't you talk more about bystanders? And there's a couple reasons for that, and we're going to get into that today. Um, but first, just to start out, let's talk about how bystanders can actually be a good thing. I mean, because it, in some cases, there have been some studies that show that, yes, when a third party sees bullying or social conflict, social aggression, when they when a third party gets involved, sometimes the quote-unquote bully, the aggressor, sometimes they do back off and back down. Am, am I right? Well, sure. Um, I think that there is a s uh, small percentage uh, of scenarios where, or, you know, small percentage of people that will actually intervene. And typically these people have a very uh, strong uh, social savviness and they, you know, for example, I love going towards the fire, like a fireman. So if I see somebody in the store or something that's arguing or a couple that are arguing, it's not uncommon for me to intervene and de-escalate it, but I'm, I'm trained in these sort of things. I don't take sides. I, uh, I, I give them context, reminding them where they are. Uh, could they discuss this uh, some other time? I may ask them what it's about. Is there any way I could help? Certainly throwing them off their, uh, their track of aggression towards each other is something that I'm feeling comfortable doing, but the vast majority of people don't feel comfortable doing that. Uh, when it is done successfully, of course, it's a great thing. It's a great contribution to society. You're viewed as a good Samaritan, someone stepping in. Uh, but I think all of us know it's very rare uh, that anyone wants to meddle in anybody's uh, business. That's sort of a rude thing to do, and you really don't know all the dynamics. And you might, uh, you might actually get hurt in the process. That's why we're kind of scared to do it. Sure, and, and I, I see it all the time in school just you know there's a situation going on there's plenty of people that'll be around to watch but how many of those people are actually thinking oh i need to step in and do something here hold my bag i'm going to step in and stop this from happening you know that that rarely happens and, and i want to go back to a point you made you said it, it takes a certain social savviness can you elaborate a little bit more on that i love that phrase but can you just break that down a little bit more what is that social savvy that you're talking about uh, someone who's social savvy uh, can navigate complicated social situations uh, and discern really quickly what they're dealing with so um, someone who's very perceptive perceptive, 
that, for example, if they're intervening, um, they're going to understand whether or not they're in physical danger. And so if they're, they are in physical danger, they're going to sense that and back off, protect themselves, and maybe perceive also who might be the weaker one and seek to rescue them uh, without getting hurt. Um, or someone who's social savvy uh, can listen through cuss words, not to cuss words, but through cuss words. So they're not going to be easily Ooh, alarmed. That's a good one. Yeah, they're not going to be easily alarmed by cuss words, and they're going to get through it and not let it uh, unnecessarily provoke them, but get to the heart of the issue. So it's just someone who can navigate complicated social uh, situations. Gotcha. Now, talking about how bystanders can be beneficial and and but also pointing out the fact that yes it's a usually a certain type of person that intervenes in situations i i know you know what i'm talking about uh but burger king recently released a video a commercial uh or or a psa a public service announcement um where they set up in a burger king restaurant with hidden cameras uh, kid, teenage actors, about four or five of them, and one kid was sitting there playing just the, the innocent kid, eating his food. Three or four others came over and were bullying him, messing with his food, messing with him, tormenting him, picking on him, just wouldn't leave this kid alone. And it was kind of a social experiment, too, because they wanted to see how many bystanders, how many customers would get up and say something. And I think at the end of it, only about 15% of the customers, the witnesses, only about 15% of them actually got up and said something to the aggressors and got them to leave the kid alone. At the end, they showed that when those, all the customers got their food, whether they intervened or not, when they got their food, the employee working at the counter said, you know, would you like your burger bullied or unbullied? And the customers were like, what? What are you talking about? And he's like, do you want your burger bullied or unbullied? And I don't know what you're talking about. So if you want it bullied, and then the guy behind the counter just like punched it and smashed it and served it to him all mangled, then they were like, what are you doing? I'm going to tell your manager. How dare you say, how dare you do that to my food? I paid for this food. And then they complained to the manager. And I think it was almost 90% or almost 100% of customers complained about their food being bullied, but only 15% actually did something about the kid that they saw being bullied. Um, and, and I think that really kind of points out just what you're saying. You know, it, a, a certain kind of person, 15%, maybe even less of the time, will actually stand up and say something. Right. Uh, I guess the comparison, I remember seeing that, the comparison was, uh, would you defend a junior whopper more than a junior in high school? And that was the premise to the, uh, to the <laughs> That's study. That's right. Uh, it was cute. Uh, you know, these are not social scientists, and these are not control groups. They, this was not a scientific study. It, it certainly wasn't respected by social scientist, scientists. Uh, but it w made a good point that, you know what? Far too many times, human beings stand by, they're bystanders, stand by while someone is getting hurt. And that should provoke the consciousness of the viewer saying, man, I hope if I was in that situation that I would be able to be like that 
few group of people that were social savvy, if you notice, they were very resilient. They didn't take sides. They didn't say, hey, back off. You guys are rude. They just kind of just were present. Uh, they were a dominating presence, uh, presence being an adult. And they were just chill. They were like, hey, you know, and started up in conversation. They weren't playing judge and saying, why did this happen? Who did what? Um, so, yeah, this is, uh, I would probably, I really believe I would be one of those that would have jumped um, to that kid's assistant, uh, assistance. Um, because I'm trained in these things. But if anything, it proved that most of us won't, which tells us, again, it's just another proof why expecting bystanders to no longer stand by, but upstand, that's why they're called upstanders, not necessarily upstanding bystanders, that's a logical, uh, it cancels itself out. Uh, that's like saying a legal criminal. Uh, <laughs> so they, they call it upstanders. So bystanders transforming into upstanders to intervene and come to the rescue like a good Samaritan, one that is weak with the wisdom to dis differentiate who is at fault and play judge and be able to de-escalate it through a calming, dominating presence. Most of us don't do that. Certainly kids don't do that. They stay out of everybody's business and just let the people work it out themselves. So they prove through that commercial that the hope that humans would upstand is a uh, pipe dream. Yeah. I mean, and saying it that way, it really kind of backfired, but it just kind of goes to prove the point, like you said, that only a very small percentage will actually do that. Um, so obviously we're, we're kind of gearing away from some of the benefits. I mean, yes, it, it is very beneficial, you know, like that small percentage, it is very beneficial when a third party can step in and, and just intervene and, you know, calm the situation. But it does take, apparently, according to everything that we've seen in the commercial, and, you know, it does take that social savvy. Um, so what are some of the negative points of being an upstander, I guess we could say, because having sat through 10 years, yeah, I've been teaching for 10 years, having sat through 10 years of bullying lessons and anti-bully this and all the programs and all the assemblies that come through, I can't tell you how many times they they all say, you know, if you see something, say something, you know, and and get the person out of there, run and get an adult, you know, just report it, report it, report it. What are some of the negative points of actually following that advice? Well, it, it puts bystanders in the role of judge. So, uh, you know, judges go to school to learn to be a wise judge and asking a kid to be able to discern um, who's right, who's wrong, uh, what is the best way to bring peace to the scenario is uh, just unrealistic. They, students can barely manage their own social problems, let alone the social problems of other people. So that's number one. Um, it, it also reinforces uh, that students often play the victim role. So uh, telling a kid that they should expect other kids to intervene and rescue them um, kind of creates a learned helplessness in the child. Expect, just like if you're saying, you know, uh, go tell a teacher and she'll solve the problem, that, that reinforces uh, learned helplessness. I can't solve this problem on my own. I need someone else to come in and rescue me. Um, also, it kind of trains students 
um, to be victims in the fact that, um, you know, if you get bullied um, and, uh, and you're going to get the uh, social reinforcement of students rescuing you, and, and you want attention. It's like a kid who wants negative attention, so he acts out. He'll take any attention possible. It's possible for a child to keep on provoking problems so that he can get the attention of his peers. That's a, a, an option. Um, they also, it doesn't teach responsibility, uh, th- that kids are responsible for their own social problems. It pushes responsibility on the community at large. By the way, adults love, uh, you know, teachers may love this because they'll say, look, it, we, we're not the eyes and ears everywhere. We can't, we can't, but you kids, there's a whole lot more of you. There's like 30 to one ratio. So if you're the eyes and ears and you do our job to police the hallways, uh, then that kind of puts the onus on children to be the little security guards and investigators and stuff like this. And kids don't like that. Parents don't want that. Parents don't want their kids to intervene in someone else's business. There's an old proverb that says, when you meddle in someone else's business, it's like grabbing a dog by the ears. And you'll get bit, by the way, if you grab a dog by the ears. Right. Uh, There have been some extreme cases where kids have actually been killed trying to intervene uh, in someone else's social squabble that wasn't even a big deal. Uh, They tried to play judge. They perceived the female was weaker, so they they tried to dominate other two aggressive kids. It turned into a physical uh, provocation. It escalated and the kid ended up dying. This is rare, but this could happen. Sure. And um, I talk about this when I, you know, when I speak and, and when I share my personal story with an audience that I'm speaking to is the school that I grew up in, the middle school I went to, it was a rough school. And all the tough kids, the mean kids, whatever you want to call them, they had this policy. It was called snitches get stitches. And when I say that to a, to a group of middle schoolers or high schoolers, they kind of chuckle and they're like, oh, yeah, we know what that is. And it's it really it's really what it sounds like. You know, if you tell on them and you get them in trouble or if you try to stop whatever they're trying to do, then they find you. They'll find you later on and you'll get hurt really, really bad. And it never happened to me, but I saw it happen and I heard of it happening to some people that I was pretty close with back in the day. And it was like, okay, I need to learn for me, at least that was kind of my wake up call of like, okay. I need to learn to solve my problems on my own because if I tell on them or if, you know, whatever happens, then I could be on the receiving end. Yeah. Informing on your peers is the most detestable thing that you could possibly do. Uh, It's a completely different issue than being an upstander. Uh, uh, But it is related in the sense that in upstander uh, curriculum, the only way that they can, that they teach children to intervene is by telling a teacher for the kid struggling or for the kid in the aggressive situation. So it does relate. And uh, in prison, they say snitches get stitches and wind up in ditches. <laughs> Don't ask me how I know that. Oh. I'm just... <laughs> I've spent time <laughs> Do you in have prison. a history, Brooks? <laughs> no, I do prison work, though. And, and uh, yes, it's absolutely uh, detestable. Now, we do want kids to, in, to uh, tell a teacher about a problem but not in the spirit of getting someone in trouble, but in the spirit of, can you help me understand how to solve this problem? Or in the case of uh, being a third party, can you help me stop this aggressive situation? Uh, I don't want you to punish anybody. I just want you to help dissolve it or, or de-escalate it. So there's a difference between tattling, which is telling on someone to get them in trouble, 
and telling, which is, hey, can you help me, educator, figure out how to solve this problem? Um, one is mm. snitching. The other is simply asking for help, and there's no problem with that. But by the way, there's a couple other sure. reasons why uh, calling kids to be upstanders is uh, it backfires. Um, um, kids who, you know, I heard this on Dr. Phil one time when he was interviewing uh, Barbara Colorosa, who wrote The Bully, The Bullied, and The Bystander, uh, one of the most famous books in this whole field. And she made a point, and Dr. Phil agreed with it, that uh, if you are standing by doing nothing, you are as guilty as the perpetrator or the aggressor. You're as guilty as the bully. How many times have we heard that? Wow. That's shaming students for not having the courage or the skill set to, and the wisdom to know exactly what's going on and know how to execute uh, this intervention. I mean, it's crazy. Um, but really what this is, the whole bystander, which it hasn't taken off, by the way, because no one knows actually how to train children to intervene. Um, it, and, and the reason why no one knows how to train if you actually interview an upstanding program, I, I just was at a school last week in Pennsylvania, and I said, and it said, up, we're upstanders, not bystanders. And I asked the counselor, um, tell me about this upstanding program. What? And I was genuine. I said, I've never really been able to know, uh, you know, what upstanding programs teach. So tell me, how do you teach kids to intervene? And she says, well, we we don't really know how to teach kids. We don't want kids to intervene. We want them to t tell the teacher so that the teacher can intervene. Uh, I said, well, then what do you do in your classroom instruction time? And they said, well, we teach them about empathy. We teach them about the power of our words and uh, how much damage can be done. We teach them about, uh, you know, essentially everything but intervening. They're, they're teaching kids how not to be mean, essentially. And what it is is a social norming effort this concept of social norming, that if we can train kids to be nice, then we will have a culture of kindness. And I'm, I have nothing against that. Uh, but don't call it a upstander, like in the sense of a, an alternative to being a bystander. Uh, call, maybe call it an upstanding citizen. <laughs> so they really get around it by uh, teaching everything but intervention strategies. Um, I do teach intervention strategies, and I teach students how to intervene exactly how a teacher should intervene, and that's don't take sides. But when you have aggression, all parties involved feel like victims. So to take sides would be uh, alienating someone else who feels like a victim, and they will actually hate you, or they will not like you because you're like, there's no fair. I'm the victim here. So really what the, the idea is, hey guys, let's not let this uh, escalate, okay? What's, what, what's the problem? And simply Say, why are you mad at him? Okay, why are you mad at her? All right. Um, you know, and just help them talk it through. This is essentially a conflict resolution strategy. Right. You want the students to be able to say, why are you mad at me? Or I'm mad at you because, and then the other person says, well, I'm mad at you because, and hopefully they listen to each other and they could take the next step closer. I'm sorry for, and they simply reflect what the other person said they're mad at them for. And the other person says, well, I'm sorry for, and they reflect what the other person said they were mad at them for. And then the third and final step is, uh, for, I, you know, I forgive you, or we're cool, or it's all good, right? 
And so if they can't do that, then a uh, upstander, <laughs> the interventionist, can help them take those three basic steps. I'm mad at you, I'm sorry for, and we're good, I forgive you, okay, cool, peace out. And if a child cannot do that, if a peer cannot successfully take them through the three-part apologetic process, that's when you go to the governing authorities and say, can you help these two walk down the three-step uh, apology uh, process? And if the hmm. adult can't, well, then, well, as Jesus said, you shake your dust off your, your you know, <laughs> you can't make everyone like you. Right. And you simply say, avoid each other. You know, try not to encounter each other. You clearly can't get on the same page and apologize and be uh, peaceful. So just stop hanging around each other. And don't make that a legal document where they all commit to not, you know, to cease and desist and to have a restraining order and not come within 25 yards of each other. Don't do that because now you've complicated the situation. Just give them the advice, guys, because you can't humble yourself, acknowledge that you've offended each other and apologize for your responsibility in the offense. Uh, just avoid each other. Sure. Uh, but that's, that's what I teach. Sure. I mean, and that's, there's so much good stuff and it's all psychologically and sociologically sound that it's, it's almost like it's so simple that it gets overlooked because, oh, there's got to be some, it's got to be more complicated than that. And, and that's the attitude I think that, that is circulating around schools and circulating around the world nowadays. It's like, well, it can't be that simple. It can't be as simple as, you know, one, two, three, you know, I'm angry because I'm sorry. Okay, you know, I forgive you. It it almost seems too simple, but the thing is, some of the best solutions are often the most simple as well. Um, you touched on a couple things uh, a couple minutes ago that I wanted to uh, highlight real quick and, and just kind of add to. Um, when, when you talked about, you know, when you label kids as bully, victim, bystander, it, it almost places them in a predetermined role, if you will. Um, and, and each of those roles is, is harmful because once those roles have been assigned, it's almost impossible to look at all sides of the story and to, to, to not take sides there, you know, thereby, you know, negating everything that, that you just said, um, or to even focus on somewhat of a solution outside of, okay, you're the bully, you're in trouble, you're the victim, come here, you know, I'll coddle you and make it all better, and you're the bystander, why didn't you do anything? It's like when we label kids, when we give kids these labels, they become, uh, as, as Dr. Susan Ava Porter, she puts it in her book, Bully Nation, they become players in a tightly scripted, fixed drama. Bullies are guilty, victims are innocent, bystanders should know the difference, there's no room for interpretation or nuance once the children are labeled, and it ends up hurting everyone. Yeah, I mean, uh, the bullying psychology is not based in reality. Right. It is a complete fabrication of pop culture. And uh, non-qualified authors like Barbara Coloroso have cr made, you know, the the have only made it worse by creating books entitled The Bullied, The Bully, or The Bully, The Bullied, and The Bystander. Oh, great. You know, we got three actors in, in the uh, theater of aggression. And it's like, you know what? 
uh, it's not true. Do you not have kids? Like clearly people who believe this don't have children. Because if you have more than one child, you realize I don't know where it started. Why are you yelling, son? Because my sister entered my room. Daughter, why in the world did you enter his room? Because he called me in. Well, why in the world did you call her in? Because I needed a drink of water and I didn't have time to get it. Well, why didn't you get him a drink of water? Because I didn't know that's what he wanted. I couldn't understand. Wait, so how far did this go back? Like, why are y'all, they're both, they both feel hurt. And oftentimes what we see is all parties have one of three emotional, uh, you know, identifiable emotions, anger, hatred, or revenge. And if I see anger, hatred, or revenge, those are all victim feelings. Those aren't true bully, sociopathic, antisocial, psychopath, you know, uh, characteristics. Those are victim feelings. I'm angry at you because you did something I didn't like. Uh, I want revenge. I, I, I did that mean thing, and I'm justified in doing that mean thing, retaliating, because, because they did this to me. So, yeah, we have victims. We don't have bullies. We don't have the bullied. We don't have the bystanders. We have, we have victims. And oftentimes, children who are exposed to an aggression actually feel victimized and traumatized themselves because, golly, they, they saw something terrible happen and, and they didn't know what to do. And so they have their own victimization issues that they were exposed to. So, man, yeah, man, I, it doesn't help uh, this, the labeling. And by the way, if you thesaurus bully, it means jerk. Right. Uh, so when you call a kid a bully and you teach kids to look and identify for bullies, we're teaching children to label other children, to judge them with judgmental terms like punk, loser, slut, and meanie. And uh, no, look for, look for, um, yes, if you see someone fighting, uh, you know, gosh, if you're going to get, if you might be in danger of getting hurt. Stay out of it, okay? And contact the authority because what they're doing is illegal. It's physical assault. Um, if you, you know, if you're trained in karate, <laughs> I guess you could rescue one of them and drag them away and run away to get a, uh, you know, a, to get an adult. Uh, and if you're seeing somebody argue, don't take sides. Just say, guys, you know, stop. You know, and if it was my friend, this is what I often get. Hey, Mr. Brooks. If you see, if I see my friend who's getting in an argument with another person, how do I help my friend? I'd say, grab your friend's arm and drag him out of that scenario. Just get him out of it. And then teach your friend everything you've learned from me. Stop getting upset. They're just trying to provoke you and treat that enemy like a friend. It'll be hard for them to stay your enemy when you're treating them like a friend. But don't take sides and don't try to solve the problem there. Just shut it down by grabbing your friend and pulling them away. Right. Now, I, I was reading through some articles, um, just kind of getting ready for, for our chat here, and came across a lot of, lot of things. Um, most, I want to say most. Some of them, I'll say it was pretty much 50-50. Some of them were, you know, yes, we need more kids to be upstanders. We need more kids to be upstanders. And, you know, to go in and essentially rescue the, the bullied kid. And there was the other side that said, you know, mm, we're kind of finding that this whole upstander thing, it's not working because, like we've said, you know, there's 
so many things, you know, it, it takes a certain kind of kid. Most kids will rationalize why they shouldn't get involved. You know, they don't want to make it their business. They don't want to get snitches, get stitches or anything like that. So it, it got me wondering, with both sides of this argument, is it easier, in your opinion, is it easier to convince a group of students to be an upstander or to teach one bullied student to be resilient and to use the golden rule? Well, the difference is um, one is you're trying to change the environment around the victim. So you're indirectly helping that victim by trying to make everyone nice and, and kind of create a social police force uh, so that there's positive peer pressure to behave correctly. And the other approach is directly helping the victim uh, not be offended in the first place. And so, yes, I would, you know, when I started this in 1999, shortly after the Columbine shooting, I lived in Littleton, Colorado, where that shooting happened. And I was traveling and speaking to schools who were trying to figure out how to help stop aggression on campus. The question is, how do we help kids who feel like victims? And I, uh, I, I promoted early on be an upstander, you know, because if there's six of you there and the, and one, one of your friends is being mean, you have social equity with that friend. You tell them, stop. We, you know, that's not cool. Don't do that. And, and I think that's kind of what the origin of the idea of being an upstander is telling your friends, stop being mean to that guy. Okay. That's not cool. Which ultimately creates positive peer pressure and creates a positive social norming effect. Um, sociologically speaking, that doesn't happen. There's never been a single high school in the nation, let alone the world, that has successfully had a upstanding, uh, a social norming, positive, non-aggressive, uh, bully-free environment. So, no, it's not possible to make utopia and, and expect students to, to create that culture. It's just not. Um, now, the, so then, yes, the ultimate strategy is to simply empower the victim not to be offended in the first place. So there's no issue. Uh, someone calls you fat, say, great, <laughs> you know, whatever, you know, you've noticed. Thanks for checking out my body. <laughs> Are you interested? Uh, <laughs> oh, or, oh, yeah, I'm fat. And it's awesome. I don't have to wear a sweater in the winter. I'm like a human crock pot. Do you want a warm hug? <laughs> you know, there's ways that you can empower someone to embrace their flaws that are, you know, or not even view them as a flaw. But if other people view them as a flaw and exaggerate them, just embrace it. Uh, say yes to my mess and, <laughs> uh, awesome. and own it. So, so that's, you know, that is important. It's, it's funny you say that just talking about, you know, making jokes and, and kind of bringing light to your own flaws. Um, uh, we, we just finished up here uh, in the classroom doing a, a series on using humor to build resilience and to show resilience, um, where I interviewed probably, I don't know, four or five stand-up comedians. And, um, and every single one of them said the exact same thing when it comes to using humor to build resilience. And it's to right away, one, accept the fact that you're not perfect, and two, don't be afraid to point out your flaws. That's how comedians, you know, that's how they get over half the stuff that's hurled at them on stage is within the first five minutes of their act, 
they get out there and they're like, hey, you know, yeah, I wear glasses. And then they do a couple of jokes on their glasses or, you know, if they're overweight, they do, you know, however much material about their weight. It's like, okay, so you take that away. You take that ammunition away from the aggressor. Where are they going to go? Well, they got nothing now. So, yeah, I love what you say about, you know, just embracing that and accepting your flaws. Right. I mean, and all humor is insults. Um, all humor is violent. You study humor, you realize, wow, someone or something has to be the butt of the joke. And uh, so if you want to be an emotionally healthy person, enjoy life and, uh, and be able to uh, be happy, you have to learn to take and make a joke about yourself. And I just counseled two students yesterday and they are absolutely miserable. One's nine years old. The other is 12 years old, 12 year old female, nine year old male. And that seems so young. I mean, 12 year old, I teach middle school. I get 12 year olds all the time, but nine, that's like third, fourth grade. That seems really young. Well, the, the problem that both of them had when I had them go through my socio-emotional resiliency scale is uh, they scored really low, completely low, as low as you possibly can score on humor. Uh, on the scale, it asks, um, I, I enjoy when people, uh, or I can take and make a joke about myself and, and enjoy laughing about my flaws or something like that. And they're like, no, I totally disagree. And, and in talking with them as well as their parents, uh, they never laugh. They're totally unhealthy, not, uh, uh, unhappy, and therefore emotionally unhealthy. Uh, and I was like, wow, dude, this is really, this is not good. This is not good at all. They can laugh at other things, don't get me wrong. Like if you tickle them, they laugh. If they see America's Funniest Home Videos and a four-year-old's trying to hit a pinata, but he misses and hits his father's groin, they're cracking up laughing. But what they don't realize is that they laugh at things that are violent and they laugh at things of someone being the butt of the joke. They just can't take it when it's them. And so uh, how you build emotional resilience as it relates to humor is help teaching them, educating them of how humor works and uh, demonstrating uh, by impa- giving them permission to make fun of you. And believe me, they will have a fun time doing it. They always do. You know, <laughs> making fun of their parent is like hilarious and giving them total immunity where they're not going to get in trouble is awesome. And role playing with them and, and bringing your other siblings, their siblings over, over and making fun of them and now flipping it and say, okay, now I'm going to make fun of you and I want you to laugh and I want you to respond, you know, this way, uh, simple response. But here's the, re- here's the rebuttal. Here's the cross-examination. Here's the, re- the objection that so many parents and teachers have. They say, yeah, but a kid is not witty enough. He doesn't have the intellectual capacity to come back with a zinger. And, you know, that's okay. They don't have to come back with something funny. Uh, Bill Cosby wrote a great book, although people don't like him now. They loved him in the 90s. And he came out with a book called The Meanest Thing to Say. And you can get it for four bucks. It's a classic and kids love it. And it essentially, a father taught little Bill uh, that when people are making fun of you, all you have to do is respond with a two-letter, single-word response, so. So when people say, little Bill, your parents are broke, you say, so. Little Bill, you can't play basketball, so. You know, if he just responds with so, that anyone can do that. A, a kid that is very uh, low in his vocabulary or articulation, he can say so. 
the key is stop getting upset and simply reply so. And it's not going to be fun for them making fun of you anymore because you're not getting upset. Interesting. That's really cool. You're cool. <laughs> you the man. <laughs> no, but but that's just really cool how you can frame it in a way that, I mean, a, a nine-year-old would be able to understand. And I, I assume that after you got done with your session there that it, everything just kind of turned around and the light bulb went on and it made sense. Am I right? Well, with this particular kid, I had to have, I have to have three sessions. You know, the first session I have to explain to him how the way, what we think about what people say determines our emotional reaction. So if we think negatively about what they say, we're going to have a negative reaction. If we think positively about what they say, we're going to have a positive reaction. So it's not what they say that determines our reaction. It's what we think about what they say. Uh, Albert Ellis put it this way, A, B, C. A, there's an action. B, there's a belief system. C, there's a consequence. And therapists always focus on the B when working with their client. But the client always wants to focus on the A. They, they have this aggression and they shouldn't. And so we say, no, it's your belief system about what they said that makes you miserable, not what they said. So I had to, that's layer one. So my next session with him will be about the nature of humor. Why are things funny? Why are compliments never funny? You know, uh, uh, I offer $10,000 cash to anybody, and I've done this for six years, to anybody who can come up with a funny compliment. And no one has uh, been able to get money from me because th there's no such thing. Although I was nervous one time. This kid came up to me and says, okay, I'm going to be $10,000 richer. And I'm like, oh, crap. <laughs> <laughs> he says, I figured a funny compliment. I said, well, what is it? He says, you walk up to a girl and you say, hey, Nice mustache. <laughs> and I cracked up laughing. <laughs> I said, that's hilarious. He says, yes, I won the money. I said, actually, no, that's called sarcasm. That is a backhanded compliment, which is an, a subtle, uh, indirect insult. Uh, girls are not supposed to have mustaches, so when you compliment her mustache, you're really telling her uh, she shouldn't have one, which is funny. And he's like, he never thought of that. <laughs> and it says, so really, sarcasm is backhanded compliments. Um, so it's really an insult. So it's true. I've done this now for six, almost seven years. And there's not a single compliment on the planet that's funny. So my second session with this kid is going to show him that all humor is insults. And, some, and, and you need to learn about how to insult. And then hopefully then he's going to have the aha moment. Gotcha. And it's crazy, just at nine, he'll be able to get it just like that. It's possible that he has mild autism. I'm not sure. Um, it's possible that he just does not have the uh, cognitive ability to perceive um, abstract behaviors, kind of see the intent or the facial expressions of those. Uh, so we're going to have to uh, approach it from a mechanical perspective um, and, and say, well, when someone does mention this, say the, this script, okay? And then so he'll learn things. He won't feel, he won't be witty, but at least he'll have the script like so. Uh, and, and, and for sure, even kids who have autism can learn not to get upset, not give words power. They may not be able to dynamically engage, but they can certainly uh, on the front end deflect the uh, aggressive comments and not be emotionally 
provoked by them. Sure. It's funny you say that, giving him a script. A uh, mutual friend of ours, Jeff Veely, he was telling me one time when he was back doing his social work, uh, he did just that. He was working with, uh, I believe, some some highly autistic kids and, and kids that came from very mixed backgrounds uh, and things of that nature. And there was a kid, I think he said elementary school, uh, third, fourth, fifth grade, somewhere around there. And the kid wanted to know how to get other kids to stop being mean to him because of his disability. And Jeff said, well, you know, do this, do this, say this, say this. And the kid just couldn't remember. And I think it was because just of his learning disability. Um, so what Jeff did, he wrote on like the size of a business card, he wrote three comebacks, three things to say. And he gave it to the kid and the kid carried it around in his pocket all the time. And whenever kids were mean to him, he would pull the card out, look at it, and read one of the responses. You know, I think one of them may have been, so what? You know, like, well, you're dumb. And the kid pulled the card out of his pocket, and he would read it because he had to. He couldn't remember. And he said, so what? And, well, you know, you, you can't, you just, and they would, and he would just read response number two. And he would read response number three without shame. He would read the card. But it worked. And it's amazing how... Something as simple as that, where teaching, teaching, a, teaching a student how to respond rather than let them react, how much difference that can make in any situation. Right. I mean, you could simply say, that's hilarious. That's hilarious. <laughs> you should be a comedian. That's so funny. Oh, good one. I mean, you know, I always encourage uh, parents or teachers, instead of giving your child a response, let them come up with the response. They'll be a lot more likely to use it. Oftentimes, when I've given a kid a response, for whatever reason, they say, well, that's not cool. And I'm like, oh, you know, I'm way older than you. I could be your dad. So you're probably right. It's probably not cool. Uh, so what would be cool in your own words, that would accomplish the same thing. And they very quickly come up with something that's very similar. And in my mind, I'm like, that's not much cooler than what I said, but I don't say that to them. <laughs> that's just me being bummed that I'm old. <laughs> right. Well, we kind of went from bystanders to, you know, to helping, helping kids stand up for themselves and helping them be able to do it for themselves rather than relying on somebody else. But I think it all intertwines, you know, once we kind of get over the fact that, Hey, we don't need, we don't always need an upstander to help drag us out of the battles. If we can prepare these kids to do things properly, then, you know, battle over. Right. Yeah, totally. Like uh, one strategy for being an upstander is using humor. Let's say, uh, some group of kids are uh, picking fun of this one kid who has a disability insecurity or some sort of apparent flaw that they're exaggerating and having a good time. Uh, that upstander could say, hey, guys, guys, no, 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 make fun of me. I'm, I'm stupider than this dude or I'm fatter than this dude or, um, you know, you could absorb it. You could turn attention towards you. And I think that's a valid thing to ask kids to do if they have a level of social savvy. Uh, but it's unrealistic to ask kids who are just trying to survive themselves. 
So I think the moral of the story here is instead of trying to help victims indirectly by expecting social police to intervene who are not much more advanced than the victim themselves, why don't we help the victim directly make and take a joke about themselves or, you know, or learn to apologize when someone's rude to them and, and, and say, hey, are you mad at me? I'm sorry. Um, I'm sorry for, are you mad at me? I'm sorry. Or recognize that that person is just trying to dominate you. And now what I just did in a very messy way, if I, des I described the aggression trifecta, and there is not a single aggressive situation that will not fall under one of the aggression trifecta. And if you stayed this far in the podcast, I'm saving the best for last. There we go. So this is my treat to you the golden for nugget. listening this long to us boneheads. Uh, the bottom line is someone is mean to your child for one of three reasons. Either they're trying to be funny and your child perceives it as being mean. They're insulting me. Yeah, dude, but all humor is insulting. Okay, so you need to laugh. <laughs> you need to respond by saying so or hey, that's hilarious. Good one. You should be a comedian. Or make fun of yourself and demonstrate emotional health. Or they're mad at you being mean to your child, number two, because they view your child as the bully and they identify as a victim. They're showing signs of anger, hatred, or revenge. And so that's signs of victimization. So all your child has to learn to do is say, are you mad at me? I'm sorry. Are we good? Cool. Or the third reason, it is true bullying and they're trying to dominate your child they're trying to leverage psychological power over your child. And the fact that your child keeps getting upset by what they say or do, whether it's social exclusion, whether it's spreading rumors, whether it's direct insult or indirect gossip, there's only eight different scenarios. Coercion, not letting other people hang out with you because they don't like you, so they're keeping friends from you. That's a level of coercion, indirect psychological dominance. You know, they're being really a bully to your child. Then the answer to that is very simple. Stop getting upset. Give people permission to be mean if they want. It's a free country, whatevs, and treat them like a friend. No matter how you treat me, I'm going to treat you the way I want to be treated. I live by the golden rule. I'm going to be kind to you even though you're being a, a punk to me. You're being rude. You're being cruel. Um, you're being unkind. Um, so that's really the aggression trifecta. Now, sometimes the trifecta, like three rings that all combine at one point, known as the hedgehog factor or the epicenter, sometimes all three are happening. The, the, the person that's being mean to your child feels victimized, uh, so they're using insulting humor uh, to hurt your child's feeling to maintain dominance over them. And that's when you've got the worst possible aggression, when all three things are at play and your child needs to be as social savvy as possible. That's why we have to train them how to respond in all three things, starting with humor, which is the very low base level of aggression that's easy to teach a child to be emotionally resilient towards. So it really is all intertwined uh, as we discuss all these things. Absolutely. And, and we have to realize that training them to do that is one it's worth the time and i think from from a teacher standpoint so many times teachers get so caught up in 
in the the day-to-day of teaching and the the lesson and and the execution of the lesson and and all the standards that they have to meet that a lot of times teachers feel that they don't have the time to dedicate to you know sitting down with a, a student and teaching them how to not get upset and teaching them all that um, so they just say, okay, we'll go talk to the counselor or whatever. And then the counselor, in, especially in today's day and age, they go right to the whole, um, you know, well, just, just don't let it bother you. And then the counselors have a mound of paperwork on their desk. And then the parents, you know, a lot of times parents are too busy at home. Oh, I just got home from work. Or they get so heated hearing about it that that they call the school and say, well, why aren't you doing anything about it, school? And it turns into this round and round effect when nobody is sitting down and going over this great material with their kid. And meanwhile, the kid is just like, I just want help. Somebody help me. Somebody help me. And they, they feel kind of lost. So thank you for saying that and just for getting it out there. It's it's really not as hard as it seems. It's just as it's just as important as, you know, it just takes somebody just has to take the time to do it. You know, I view social problems the same way I view math problems or uh, biology subject problems, science and history problems that you might find on a quiz or whatever. Like everyone needs to learn the same material. Everyone needs to learn to be social savvy. Uh, just some are a little more uh, quicker with math than others. Some are a little more savvy with social challenges than others based on their personality disposition. Some have a really hard time with math and numbers. They have the equivalent to mathematics dyslexia or something. They still need to learn how to you know, correct an al- algebraic qua- equation, uh, how to understand the basics of calculus or whatever the subject is, but they're going to take a little more time on the front end, a little more patience from the educator, uh, maybe even a totally different approach to teaching them how to solve the problem, but ultimately they're going to need to become competent in these subjects. So why are we solving children's social problems when we would never solve a child's math problems for them? You know, we, we've, we've, uh, we expect them to learn to solve reading, writing, arithmetic, but not relationships, the fourth R that actually affects the other three R's. Uh, so yes, how we build emotional resilience is one way. Education. Once a child has the light of illumination come upon, across their mind, oh, this is what's going on. Oh, this is what that person's trying to do. Oh, this is how I can respond. Once they are educated, they're emotionally resilient. And these aggressive situations they find themselves in are like pop quizzes. They demonstrate their level of mastery over their social subject. And uh, we use these as opportunities to measure the level of their socio-emotional resiliency. And we uh, debrief and say, here's where uh, I think you went wrong. Here's where uh, you went right. Here's where you could improve. And uh, next time something like this happens, come see me. I'll help you debrief, and we'll prep you for the next time. So uh, in another podcast, I'd like to share with you, Chris, uh, what I call the, uh, the learning cycle and the teaching cycle. And there are two concepts I've, I've discovered and I'm working on in my next book uh, of how we can teach emotional resilience 
there's four, four elements a child has to go through and four elements a teacher has to go through to effectively teach emotional resilience. And we could discuss that next time. That sounds great because I know you are sought after uh, all over the world now. Your videos are going viral, um, and man, you're just you're just blowing up. Every every time I look on my Facebook, there's a new video, there's a new something uh, from you, and it's just so cool to see how things are going and to to see how this message is getting out there. Well, I assure you this: it's the message, like you said. Sure. It's not the messenger. And there could be a hundred of me. If you could just capture other people teaching the same basic social skills, the globe is going to respond. And so when people say, can you please come to South Africa? Can you please come to uh, the Philippines? Can you please blah, blah, blah? And I'm like, no, no, (laughs) you don't need me, bro. You just need someone who can communicate. And there's a lot of those folks and, and teach them these same basic skills. So um, I mean that with all my heart. Uh, there's no pride here. It's not the messenger; it is the message. And so you're a great, um, you're a great uh, proponent of the same message. And I know that you're going to have great success. Thank you, buddy. Thank you. Now you do have a program that uh, I, I want to make sure we plug before before we dismiss class here. Um, you do have a program right now that is very very successful. And so many people are, are purchasing it, and the results are no doubt astounding. Um, it's uh, Raise Them Strong. Is that right? That's right. RaiseThemStrong.com. Over 2,500 people just in the last you know, 60 days have uh, purchased this program uh, all over the world. And I'm getting rave reviews, and I'm improving it, too. I'm listening to the people who are going through the program. So RaiseThemStrong.com. It's a video series program. You just push play, show the student. I'll take it from there. And there's also some adult training so that you can reinforce it after they watch the videos. And it builds up the emotional resilience of children as it relates to social problems like verbal insults, cyberbullying, uh, social exclusion, uh, coercion, you know, the, the 10 plus different topics that, uh, that they might face. So yeah, thanks. Thanks for letting me share that. That's awesome. Absolutely. And if people want to find out more about you and, and how to get you, uh, brooksgibbs.com. Is that right? Yeah. I would say I'm booked. Do not try to get me. Go to chrisintheclassroom.com <laughs> and get Chris to come out. That's the best thing for you. <laughs> thank you. Thank you for that. You're welcome. Very cool. Well, Brooks, thank you again for uh, for joining us today in the classroom. And yeah, I look forward to, to having another chat with you about the learning cycle and, uh, and everything that you're doing with your new book. So thank you so much. And for all my listeners, class is dismissed. Dismissed.